0: And the promise of drone warfare for states and militaries that use them is this notion of riskless war, which is to say that we can project power without projecting vulnerability. The other sort of perspective is the status or approbation that states receive in becoming a card carrying member of the armed network drone club.
1: Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI. And on this episode, we're going to talk about drones, armed, networked, and unmanned platforms increasingly being used by military forces around the world. If you go looking for books about drones, chances are you're going to find a lot. But there's a new book coming out that looks at a really unique aspect of the topic, how these platforms affect the global order. In fact, that's the name of the book, Drones and Global Order, Implications of Remote Warfare for International Society. It is an edited volume with a fantastic lineup of contributors, and I'm really happy to be joined on the podcast today by one of the editors, Paul Leshenko. During the conversation, he touches on everything from why states and non-state actors choose to use armed drones as weapons of war, how that use impacts their international reputations, questions of law and morality, and ultimately the impact of these weapons not just on the character of warfare but on geopolitics, balances of power, and more. Before we get to the discussion, a couple quick notes. First, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants, and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the US government. All right, here's my conversation with Paul Leshenko. Paul, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the MWI podcast.
0: Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, John.
1: So you are an editor, one of three editors on uh, uh, what I think is a brand new book out um, called "Drones and Global Order: Implications of Remote Warfare for International Society." And there's a lot to kind of unpack just in that title. We're going to get after it. Um, you know, I you know the book has. Uh, I think that this is a subject that necessarily lends itself well to an edited volume because there are so many different facets of you know, the questions about drones, legal, ethical, operational, what have you. Um, But kind of before we begin, can you give listeners a sense of uh, your background? You're an army officer, uh, but you're at Cornell University now.
0: Yeah, that's right. So uh, again, really appreciate the opportunity to convey the body of my work empirically on drone warfare. So I'm at Cornell right now pursuing a PhD in international relations theory with a focus on the shifting character of war. And really what that means is the integration of remote warfare technology, namely drone warfare, into contemporary conflict between states, but also taking consideration non-state actors, chief among these being the Islamic State. Been here for about a year um, and starting my second year of PhD um, training at this point. And this is under the auspices of the Army's broader program called Advanced Strategic Planning and Policy Program. It's a mouthful, ASP3, that gives a handful of us each year the opportunity to pursue doctoral education anywhere that we can uh, gain admittance, uh, whether in the United States uh, or abroad. Uh, Before that, I really spent the better part of two decades as an intelligence officer supporting special operation forces, namely the 75th Ranger Regiment, in our counterterrorism operations against Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, and other violent extremist organizations across Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, and elsewhere. And then before that, my conditioning was from the United States Military Academy uh, at West Point in 2005. So I find myself, you know, some 16 years later, uh, as a colonel preparing to compete for battalion command uh, here shortly.
1: Great. You mentioned the the ASP three program, and 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 I just kind of want to follow up on that because it's a fantastic program. Uh, we have a number of people in the MWR network, MWI network, uh, our current director, our former deputy director, that have been involved with the program, have been sent to go get a PhD. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, why, you know, to the extent that you know, why uh, the Army. Created this program to select officers and and send them to graduate school to get a to get a doctorate.
0: Yeah, I think it's a great question. It's one that the that the army finds itself consistently confronting, especially during budgetary cuts, because there is some costs associated in terms of not just the dollars for top tier universities and our remit. Uh, is top tier universities. That's been the guidance for uh, ASP3 officers from the chief of staff himself is get accepted by the best of breed for your particular research interests, but also the time component it takes to achieve a doctoral level of education. Typically, a student would spend five to six years in a PhD program, whereas the Army is asking us to do it in three. So the broader context of this program is really attempting to reconcile those who are thinkers within the Army, Critically on matters of importance, such as a shifting character of warfare, but also who are doers in terms of leading soldiers in combat, which is a key core competency of any leader in the army. And I like to say that both of these go hand in glove. But at time, because of the extreme uh, requirements and training. Uh, deployments, uh, one gets sacrificed often, and that's that's typically the critical thinking component, uh, maybe codified within a book-length manuscript on a certain subject. And so the Army, around 2010, 2012, uh, under General Odierno as a chief of staff of the Army, recognized the need to professionalize the force in terms of critical thinking at the time. Um, We were contending um, with a threat that we didn't really understand within Iraq and Afghanistan, certainly. And the thought was, let's professionalize the force in terms of higher education to contend with these strategic uh, issues. Over time, the return on investment for the Army is that an officer from ASP-3 would not just become another faculty member at one of the war colleges or West Point, but would continue to serve in critical leadership positions at the battalion brigade in above levels uh, of of war, if you will, and then also supplement the critical thinking operations of a combatant commander, of a ASCC, Army Service Component Commander, uh, of somebody on the Army or joint staff. And So over time, the return on investment is an integration of deep analysis towards problems that are germane to the Army's ability to achieve its core mission, which is to fight and win the nation's wars.
1: Uh, that's a great rundown, and actually, for you know, for listeners,
0: uh,
1: y- you know, you wrote an article for us that we published. I believe it was last summer. Uh, we called it "Warfighters in Ivory Towers." Does the army? Yes. Does the U.S. Army need officers with doctoral degrees? Uh, it really kind of lays out the case in even more detail than than you kind of provided right here. So, if there are any you know, junior field grade officers or even company grade officers that are looking ahead at their career and interested in this program, I'd definitely, you know, check out the MWI website, uh, go find that article and, and keep an eye on the program because it really is, I think the key aspect of it is that it sends you to go get a PhD, but then you go back to the force and you do some things that, where you can kind of put that, that, that expertise that you've gained uh, to use in the service of the Army. So I think that's fantastic.
0: Yeah, John, if I could just real quick too, there's, there's another component here, which I think is potentially in some cases more important, and that is the opportunity to serve as an ambassador from the U.S. Army, the U.S. military to a community of scholars, whether faculty or Ph. students or graduate or undergraduate students that may not be exposed to the military in really the essence of what we do for the nation which is not just you know fighting with the nation's war, protect our democracy, but as civil military relations. And so I find myself often communicating the subordination of the military to political leaders based upon our oath of office to the Constitution, as it were, as opposed to any sort of political wins at the time. And that's been certainly a very important the last couple of years that we've seen on TV, what's the place of the military uh, in our political system is, is another component of this, which I think we can't discount.
1: Yeah, the civil military relations sort of aspect of it is really important. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of as we shift gears into you know the subject of your book and the subject um, you know why I asked you to come on the podcast today. Uh, Drone warfare. You know, I'm going to sort of break the fourth wall, uh, in a sense, uh, and give listeners kind of a view into, uh, you know, what happens before we we start recording. You and I were emailing back and forth and kind of talking about, hey, this is what I'd like to speak about. Here's some of the things that I'd like like you to, you know, to talk about on on the episode. Um, And you came back and said, you know what, a really important kind of maybe first question is, um, how do we define drone warfare? And I find that really interesting because I was thinking about that today, and you know, it's one of those things that. We know what armed drones are. We know, you know, the effects that they can have on the battlefield. It's almost that sort of, you know, I, is it important to define it? Because I know it when I see it. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, as our as the conversations we have about drones, especially armed drones, mature uh, and we add nuance. It, you know that's not good enough to be able to know it when we see it. it. We do really sort of need to define it. So I am gonna, I am gonna kind of um, ask that kind of open open this conversation by asking that question. How how should we conceptualize drone warfare?
0: Yeah, I think it's actually a pretty important question because someone who actually has an expertise applying drones tactically and strategically, I'm quite uh, disturbed by the assumption within the scholarship of what it is and what it's not. And so what you often hear within the scholarship is that drones, armed drones, and network drones at that are really altering irrevocably the character of warfare. So how war is currently waged, but also at the same time, the nature of warfare, which people like H.R. McMaster, another established war theorist, will tell you the underlying social and political dimensions of war, the human component uh, especially. And I think that this conflation between the character and nature of war is due largely to the result of the use of armed drones, certainly by the United States, but also France, it conducted an operation in late August now uh, that resulted in the death of the Islamic State's leader in Africa. I think it's because of this notion of targeted killing uh, that we often conflate the the character and uh, nature of warfare. So having said that, how do scholars most often define warfare? Well, in my analysis, and this is in a chapter uh, that will come out here shortly in a book on urban conflict and drone warfare, we often find uh verification of drone warfare to the platform itself. Drone warfare in essence is an MQ-9 Reaper built by General Atomics that flies well above 500 miles per hour. It's got an operational reach of 200 miles and can deliver a payload of well in excess of a ton. And so this is the notion that drone warfare should be essentialized to the platform itself. I think, however, the most insightful uh, analysis on what drone warfare comes uh, It comes from scholars who recognize kind of one of three different questions. And the first is, what missions do armed drones actually perform? And so there are those that talk about armed drones used for killing, watching, uh, and aiding. And Sarah Krebs, my supervisor at Cornell, will talk about the strategic context of conflict, whether it's humanitarian intervention, counterterrorism, interstate conflict, really mediating the purpose at play for armed drones. So besides targeted killing, most states would like to have armed drones, but potentially don't have the technological uh, monetary wherewithal to integrate them into their arsenals. And therefore they've adopted these cheaper, non-lethal, less than lethal armed drones that are useful for short duration, intelligence, reconnaissance, and surveillance missions, such as in irredentist disputes or disputed territories. So the recent conflict in Armenia in Azerbaijan is one case in point. The second sort of approach is to understand how armed drones engage a particular target. And this is really a special matter of inquiry for those who are interested in the broader question of the moral permissibility of strikes. And so on the one hand, one of my colleagues from the University of Queensland, Neil Rennick, just came out with an interesting book called Radical Asymmetric Violence. And he'll talk about the technological advancement in war epitomized by drones leading to this notion of radically asymmetric violence, which is an imbalance of the liability to be harmed by combatants uh, as opposed to uh, non-combatants. And so you're basically, in a lopsided way, um, consolidating liability to be harmed in one side versus the uh, the other. There is another approach here, uh, which is from Hugh Gusterson, which will talk about drone warfare in terms of mixed and pure types and so the mixed type is the use of drones in support of expeditionary forces, let's say in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the pure type becomes those strikes in Yemen and Pakistan that are separate apparently from expeditionary forces. It's a matter of UAVs um, as war versus UAVs uh, in war. And that and that nomenclature is for unmanned aerial vehicle. And that quote comes from, from Rennick himself. And then finally, you get those who talk about where drone warfare takes place. And so Gusterson's notion of mixed and pure is important because that lends a conversation about the so-called hot and cold theater of operations. So is it declared, as in the case of Iraq and Afghanistan internationally, or is it not in the case of Yemen and Pakistan? This sort of third interrogative question of where also points to the legality of strikes, which we can talk about later, but broadly speaking, the just recourse to war or the just use of force in war. But in my reading, this gives us precious little understanding of what actually drone warfare is. Because what's often happening is a perception discreetly on uh, what drones do, how they do it, and where, and also an assumption of why drones are conducted, strikes are conducted in the first place without integrating them into a comprehensive picture of what drone warfare is and is not. And the the key trade-off for me in my studies Is that we haven't been able to provide especially casual non-expert observers, Americans, French people, an ability to understand what the practice is or practice is not, and and therefore the sort of democratic accountability within a democratic political institution, America's democracy for that, is often lacking. And Sarah Krebs and John Cag talk about this a lot in their book called Drone Warfare. And so because of this, I actually adopt a unique definition within the book and in my broader studies. I understand drone warfare is the use of armed drones in concert with expeditionary forces to achieve both military and political objectives, whether limited or maximal, and across the continuum of competition and in conflict. And I think that this is an important contribution in and of itself for a couple reasons. One is that the definition is broad enough to account for the lethal, non-lethal aspects of drone warfare. The second thing is it allows us to appreciate the diverse missions that armed drones can conduct. And then finally, what type of conflict? And this is important as we start to think about where drone warfare literature has become stale in terms of urban conflict and where this definition helps to advance this conversation.
1: You know, you mentioned the literature and, you know... Armed drones specifically, we, you know, have been around for a quarter of a century at least in the U.S. arsenal. We've had Reapers and Predators since yes. you know the mid '90s and early 2000s, uh, respectively, I believe. Um, you've got there is you know there's no shortage of books on them. You've got uh, you know Peter Singer's uh, Wired for War, which talked a lot about kind of the robotics revolution in in warfare and and was kind of a broad based uh, survey of, of various aspects of it. Um, you've got most recently. Um, I believe it was Wayne Phelps that wrote on killing remotely came out this, uh, this past summer, that's on sort of the, um, the psychological, uh, impact on drone operators and, you know, Paul Shari's army of none there, there are books, uh, about drone warfare. I guess, you know, what seems to set yours apart is that you very deliberately framed it as a question on how they impact, uh, the global order. What made you decide to use that as the sort of framing mechanism?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And frankly, it's a question that Sarah Kreps, again, my supervisor here at Cornell, a recognized international expert on drone warfare, asked me as I started this project, because there are so many works and the the scholarship appears to be saturated, what makes this contribution meaningful? And additionally, I just talked to Hugh Gustafson, who I mentioned earlier, and he talked about Americans especially um, lacking interest in drone warfare, um, as it were, going forward. Um, So I had to contend with that. What I may do in answering this question is two things. One is, I want to explain the genesis of the book. And then two is kind of the niche contribution for uh, global order, which will allow me to explain the sort of ways of uh, drone warfare scholarship. So on the former, you know, where did this book derive from? So As I mentioned, for really the better part of two decades, um, applying drone warfare, managing the intelligence, rather, uh, that would allow a commander to make a decision one way or another, I almost viewed as a moral obligation to share expertise and experiences to professionalize the force. And this is in the acknowledgement of the book, And, and not only for the military, which is very, very important, of course, uh, given my professional obligations, but also for the broader scholarship and defense intellectuals to understand the implications at a, at a broader global level that heretofore hadn't really been contended well enough within the literature. And, and indeed, uh, people like myself, my peers, uh, and others were called upon to deploy for you know two decades in Afghanistan and Iraq to protect and preserve the so-called liberal international order. And so during the initial outbreak of the pandemic, I found myself mowing the lawn, literally, in Northern uh, Virginia, Alexandria. At the time, I worked as an exo executive officer to uh, Lieutenant General Scott Barrier, uh, the senior intelligence officer of the Army. And I asked myself, you know, how can I meaningfully meaningfully contribute to the literature on drone warfare? And this is something that 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 came to me as I was literally... um, mowing the law. So that's That's the, the, the broader genesis. But how does this book contribute where others uh, potentially haven't, or at least not to the degree that we do on global order? And so I think that you have to understand the waves of, of, of drone warfare literature. And so in 2002, President George W. Bush used a drone for the first time to kill an Al-Qaeda official that was involved with the bombing of the USS Cole several years earlier. And since then, there's been kind of this uh, deleterious trend within global security, where we now have 20 uh, to 35 or so, depending on the report, uh, states that, that actually have these armed and network drones. And so scholars have contended with the emergence of drone warfare, as I just defined it, in one of three waves. The, the first wave scholarship was really content on understanding the drivers of drone proliferation, which is to say that the diffusion of the technology across member states of international society and indeed non-state actors like trans-regional terrorists that have given rise to what one UN official calls the uh, second drone uh, age. Most scholars within this wave, as we talk about in the book and in other writings uh, that I've published, will really focus on the demand side of drone warfare, which is to say an appetite from especially U.S. allies and partners for the capability. Much less attention was and has been focused on the supply side, which is lobbying, frankly, from the two largest manufacturers of U.S. armed drones, that would be Northrop Grumman and General Atomics, of congressional officials to support the sale of drones Abroad And indeed, towards the tail end of the Trump administration, you saw some fights within Congress. Really, Congress was exercising its oversight on the foreign military sales of drones to key regional allies uh, to include Saudi Arabia. So that was the first sort of wave. Uh, The second sort of wave dealt with the effectiveness, the punitive effectiveness of drone strikes in combat. And this was bifurcated really between those who thought it was effective and think it's effective and those who don't. And so, on the one hand, you have people like Brian Price, you no know, uh, stranger to West Point, the director of the Counterterrorism Study Center, that talked about drones being effective in limited sort of operations against a particular typology of threat, in this case, religiously uh, inspired uh, terrorist. And then you have those who argue, like Jenna Jordan, that, you know, really drones may be tactically effective, but they don't really. Ameliorate the sort of social and political grievances that actually give rise to political conflict in the first place. So, an insurgency may have multiple terrorists picked off by a drone strike, but on the other hand, that does nothing to abate the, bro- the broader sort of communal movement towards installing uh, more uh, legitimate political authority, or at least to their mind. And the debate, frankly, is, is really unsettled this, at this point. And then the third wave. Um, dealt with the legal, moral, and ethical implications of drone warfare, partly because it's very challenging with the lack of data and transparency for some of these strikes to actually draw a causal effect for, uh, for an argument. And so philosophers, psychologists, anthropologists, legal scholars were more comfortable talking about philosophically what would make a strike moral and ethical and what would not. And so as I was mowing the lawn in Virgi- Virginia reflecting on this, It really struck me that the literature is saturated, but it's saturated within one of these three waves, and mostly the third wave. Rennick's book's a good example of that. Some of Sarah's work is a good example of that. And so how do we push the debate forward about the place of drone warfare in international society? We need to make global order the locus of our analysis and understand the trade-offs of drones on this social concept. Some of them actually, frankly, are helpful. Whereas some are not, and we can talk about those going forward, but broadly speaking, that's where this book attempts to take the conversation in an entirely new direction that most scholars haven't given uh, real attention to
1: so you are an army officer you've talked about your your uh, your military background listeners will you know will hear you and, and hear you talking about this um, you know, if very much from a sort of scholarly perspective, you've, you've done, you know, you've given a, a, a fantastic literature review. I want to ask though, you know, we talk a lot about the need to bridge the gap between scholarship and, and, and practice. Um, you know, I think that, in that sense, I think it's important that we, you know, that the army sent you to to do a PhD as a practitioner, and you're looking at these things from a scholarly perspective. When it comes to drones and drone warfare, how big is that gap, uh, and is it, you know, how does it compare to say some of the other issues that, uh, you know, we might focus on issues of importance to uh, to to modern war,
0: John? That's a great question. What is the return on the investment for the army who? You know, people within the Army will, will, will listen to this and say, OK, you know, you you've published a book, but w- w- what does it mean in, in real terms, I think, is a phenomenal question. It's actually a question that was posed to me last week as I presented a paper to a panel here at Cornell, which will be published and part of my dissertation on the public's perception of morally legitimate drone warfare, uh, which I'd like to talk about later uh, as well. And so the place of this book in Army professional education is this. We often talk about these higher order implications, legitimacy, order, when we're determining the merits or not of conducting a strike in combat. I can't tell you how many times, the times myself as the intelligence officer for the Joint Special Operations Task Force in Afghanistan or Iraq, would sit there and talk to the J-3, the operations officer and the commander. He had his nucleus of support surrounding him. What does this strike mean for legitimacy of America's intervention in Afghanistan in this case, what does it mean for the status or approbation that the United States receives from regional allies and partners, certainly set against the metastasizing of the Islamic State in the Khorasan province. So these questions that we talk about in the book are highly germane to what the army does, whether or not we want to recognize it, and it really becomes a very germane conversation at the battalion, brigade, and higher levels of command whether theater strategic theater operational, is we attempt to adjudicate measures of performance and effectiveness of these strikes. and so this is just necessarily just a fanciful conversation to check the mark for you know a dissertation or, or whatever. These are substantive conversations that we have to contend with and have to be equipped with the tools and the frameworks to do so. And I think that is the contribution uh, for the Army going forward. And and one final point is one of the reviewers on the book uh, is Barry McCaffrey, four-star general retired. And he'll talk about this book being very important for the war colleges to expose our senior leaders to these different intellectual traditions on how to understand the concept of legitimacy that they often question themselves, but they may not have the tool set conceptually because, well, we've been in the fight uh, for two decades and that's what we do.
1: So I want to shift gears and ask you kind of maybe a series of of fairly specific questions. And the first one is, um, you know, the answer may seem... Intuitive, but I'm not sure that it is or that it should be anyway. Um, I'm curious what factors seem to influence states who decide to to, to make drones a, a key feature of really of their way of war. Um, you know, there's you look at it and you, there are tactical advantages that, you know, the they can remain on station longer than most manned aircraft. Um, there's a, you know, certainly a force protection element to it. You don't have to put a pilot pilot up potentially in harm's way. Um, but what are the factors that, you know, the U.S. is probably the the easiest exa- example, but as we have more and more states, you know, equipping unmanned aircraft with weaponry and, you know, advanced sensors and using them as part of their warfighting, you know, w- w- what goes into that decision?
0: Yeah, and so um, another great question that's often assumed within the literature, but it's simply not clear. In the book, one of the justifications for publication is the logics, as we put it, that would motivate uh, a state uh, or non-state actor to, to use uh, drone warfare. And so probably the easiest way to contend with this question is, is two sort of broad perspectives. The one is most popular, and that's sort of the material dividends that a state in this case would receive in using drone warfare. And the promise of drone warfare for states and militaries that use them is this notion of riskless war, which is to say that we can project power without projecting vulnerability, which in fact is a quote from U.S. Air Force General Deptula uh, in about 2000, I want to say four or so when he was talking about the emergence of drone warfare. So the notion that you can actually use drones while Obtaining a certain degree of force protection that we haven't uh, heretofore is very appealing for not only military officials but also for political officials because with civilian with casualties, excuse me, on behalf of a force comes reputational cost that can be meted out during during an election. And in terms of the democratic uh, accountability at stake here, I would point you to Sarah Krebs and John Cagg's work. Um, uh, on this front. The other sort of perspective is the status or approbation that states receive in becoming a card carrying member of the armed and network drone club. So there's a chapter within the book written by a US Air Force Lieutenant Colonel, also a PhD uh, through their PhD producing program um, from Stanford that talks about this notion of conspicuous consumption and so states may not actually have the ability to integrate drones into their military arsenals, but may want them to demonstrate that they ought to have a seat at the table, whatever that table means for regional security or global security. And you see this argument made quite often in terms of an aircraft carrier or the joint strike fighter or the F-22 Raptor, are these things going to become become efficacious for a military that doesn't have a budget, doesn't have the training, doesn't have the maintenance or sustainment tail, but yet would want to pursue these to become a member of the club uh, in any case? Uh, another good sort of work here is by Michael Horwitz from the University of Pennsylvania that actually takes a look at the Olympic medals that a country receives and attempts to understand. Um, Whether or not they have a status sort of interest in having these drones. And so in broad terms, it comes down to having guns and butters to achieve this sort of notion of riskless war. Um, But also on the other hand, certainly for smaller states to be able to demonstrate a capability that would let them make a meaningful contribution um, with other states that are conducting interventions, especially regionally.
1: Okay, so my f- I have a follow up question. Then, if if those are some of the factors that um, that states consider when when making this this decision to use uh, armed and network drones, as you said, what factors do you think they should be considering that maybe they're not?
0: Yeah, I think this is the, the more important question uh, as well, and actually leads into some of my ongoing research and original survey experiments in America and France. Um, uh, in terms of what states should think about. And so I'm going to give you two answers here. So there's probably more, uh, but these are the ones that, that I consider before, before this interview, interview. So the first one is, what do you want the drone to be used for? So we've talked about the use of armed drones for targeted killing. We've talked about um, the use of armed drones for intelligence surveillance uh, surveillance and reconnaissance missions that are short order, short duration. These are often non-armed um, a non-lethal, non-networked uh, drones. But as you take a look at the typology of purposes of drones in conflict, w- what I've settled on is really three main purposes uh, for drone warfare. The first is the use of drones to pressure or disrupt uh, an organization. And this is the doctrinal term, disruption. The other is the use of drones to kill um, key facilitators, recruiters, propagandists, Um, people who facilitate lethal aid. uh, And this would be called the sort of leverage component of targeting. And some even equate leverage to a center of gravity, uh, which is the hub of power uh, for a clandestine network like a terrorist organization, an insurgency, or indeed um, narco, um, narcotics organizations as well. And finally, is this notion of desynchronization, which some people relate often to decapitation, but it's much broader because it's also designed to disrupt And to momentarily um, destroy capability, but in some cases can potentially defeat um, an organization's uh, capability in terms of, let's say, external operations. So, a great case in point on sort of desynchronization would be our use of drone strikes against the Islamic State in the Khorasan province, which is the regional affiliate in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Central and South Asia, that resulted not simply in disruption of the organization from the east to west of Afghanistan but also momentarily redressed its ability to plan and prepare and execute operations towards our European allies in America. And so we momentarily destroyed the capability which we've seen has been um, reorganized and consolidated in Afghanistan uh, as of late. And so what do you want drones to do for you is the first sort of questions that militaries and leaders should confront. Pressure leverage desynchronization is one framework uh, that I've adopted and have written about to understand this. The other sort of consideration um, which we should spend some time on is the public's perception of what I call morally legitimate drone warfare. And so in the annals of legitimacy studies, you often understand legitimacy in one of two ways. One is it's a legalistic concept. It's a compliance pole of states to align behavior against, let's say, international humanitarian law, which are the laws of armed conflict uh, or other sort of protocols that states have agreed on. So this is the compliance tradition of Legitimacy studies. And the other way to understand it is is almost a sociological or subjective perception, which is empirical at the same time, which is people's stated beliefs about the uh, rightful conduct, uh, in this case of wartime behavior. And so when I talk about the public's perception of morally legitimate drone warfare, Really what I'm talking about are the underlying norms and rules that condition people's immediate intuitions for how they understand legitimate strikes or not. And I'm going to leave it there because you probably have a lot of questions about what that means, but I can unpack it further. So I think that this is the second sort of consideration is is the notion of legitimate drone warfare
1: yeah and and that which has so many layers to it too right there is the there is a codified legal construct, uh, the law of armed conflict um, where we talk about proportionality and discrimination and and the the principles um, of the law of armed conflict. There's also the um, you know ethical uh, consideration which overlays on top of but is distinct from the sort of public sentiment one does That's does right. does the American public want wars fought in their name to be fought remotely with these sorts of platforms? And, you know, those all feed into that question of legitimacy. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah, this is really what fires me up when I start thinking about drone warfare studies in the next wave, because what it allows us to do is to adopt, at least in a social uh, scientist sense, sense, what we call these econometric methods, so empirical uh, statistical methods, and and treat legitimacy is actually a dependent variable which can shift based upon different conditions. And so what do I mean about moral legitimacy? And so when you take a look at the drone warfare literature, what you often find are scholars, again, mostly philosophers, psychologists, cognitive scientists, talking about legitimacy in terms of one or three moral norms. A moral norm is something that is thought to regulate and uh, constitute behavior. It's usually thought of as universal in scope. It's not linked to one or another political authority. Uh, It's consistently held by people across cultures, and it typically relates to suffering and, of course, suffering uh, is involved in conflict, whether or not it's the direct form or the indirect form that we're talking about today. And so the first sort of moral norm that people talk about in terms of legitimacy is this notion of courage, that we would want our soldiers to actually demonstrate physical courage on the battlefield, be liable to be harmed as a measure of legitimacy. And this relates to Gusterson's notion of mixed drone warfare, the use of strikes in support of expeditionary deployed forces in ground combat. The second sort of moral norm pivots on the outcomes at play. So minimizing the risk to soldiers, in other words, force protection, is the most important outcome for militaries, at least in Western democracies. Now, there are other outcomes that we can point to, let's say, the broader protection of society, the lack of a terrorist conducting a strike. But in conflict, the force protection measure becomes really important. And this links to the empirical implication of peer drone warfare, the use of drones as um, an end state in themselves and not a, a broader sort of ground operation. And then finally, you have this notion of duties of cares to others or the notion of non-combatant immunity. Do not kill civilians intentionally. And this is justified or codified within whose Um, which is this just recourse uh, to war, the the distinction and proportionality components especially. And as you take a look at the literature, you often see duties of care to civilians couched in terms of constraints that prescribe um, behavior. And so these constraints look like a reputational cost that a country would incur for a civilian casualty, which Potentially happened in Afghanistan recently with uh, the strike that killed a purported uh, ISIS K facilitator. Uh, That we should demonstrate uh, militaries uh, that that is should demonstrate the use of a strike towards a military objective only, because when we start talking about politics, legitimacy becomes very tenuous. And then finally is this notion of constraints that go above and beyond what even a layperson would understand as uh, feasible or warranted in Hussein Bellow considerations. And so we call these in the literature supererogatory constraints. And as you take a look at the literature, it's either courage, outcomes, and duties that scholars often talk about. But having watched and conducted drone warfare for two decades, I, I think we've missed the boat on understanding that it's not one or the other, but that these norms work in concert with each other and are teased out in certain ways based upon how strikes are used and how strikes are constrained. And so it's not one or the other, but a constellation of these norms that we have to understand through this notion of use and constraint, which is my original contribution to the literature.
1: Has the, uh, the sort of emergence of drones and the proliferation of drones over the past, you know, say two decades plus, um, has, it, has it been destabilizing?
0: Well, I think this probably links back uh, to the conversation about global order and the trade-offs in global order. Um, One thing I I may want to do right now to kind of tie up the the previous question is just to really focus on the use and constraint of of drone warfare. And and then I'll flip back uh, into your question, because this is very important to understand, right? So the, the use of drone warfare can be a tactic, much like a patrol or clearance operation in conflict, but it also can be used as a strategy which the scholarship and practitioners pay less attention to. Uh, and it's really underwritten by a theory of victory that we could use drone warfare to, get to decapitate an organization. Where on the other hand, there's different types of constraints to include, you know, constraints. So President Obama's presidential guidance that was uh, integrated, I think, in 2013, Uh, is a form of unilateral constraint, but there's also multilateral constraints as well, such as the United Nations Security Council resolution that governs French drone strikes uh, within Africa. And so different combinations of the use and constraint rule will really conditions people's perceptions of legitimate drone strikes in one way or another. And my key findings, at least so far, suggest that the tactical use of drone warfare with multilateral constraints is viewed by the public, at least Americans, is highly morally legitimate. And this is like the French model of drone strikes in Mali. They use it as a patrol or as a clearance operation, but they also have broad oversight um, from uh, different external bodies to include, especially the Shahal 5, which are countries in, in Western Africa, but also the United Nations. You know, the destabilizing aspect um, of drone warfare can in fact be linked To this concept of use and constraint that I'm building right now. It's really fascinating to me as you take a look at the data that most Americans at least, and it's an outstanding question of whether or not others in the world believe this, but most Americans actually think that the tactical use of a drone strike without external control or unilaterally is somewhat legitimate. And this is pretty troubling for me because what it suggests is that states like Turkey um, and other sort of regional actors can adopt the use of armed and networked drones and not be held liable in terms of legitimacy for a civilian casually. Indeed, their um, operations typically fly completely underneath the radar. Most Americans don't understand how to contend with it. And so as you take a look at the global governance of drone warfare, what we often think and settle on is: well if the United States' is strike against Soleimani. It was strategic in nature with unilateral constraints. This is what's unraveling the, the, the key sort of procedural norm, sovereignty, uh, that undergirds global order Whereas my contention is we ought to take a look at the proliferation of drones to regional and smaller states because they're using them and will continue to use them prolifically, but yet not be held account. And so the global sort of governance gap is very clear uh, in this sense, which is why we confront it within the book. I mean, we have an entire chapter or two on how you actually contend with drone warfare, because I think it is destabilizing to a degree.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I I I told you that I, I wanted to ask you this question that I, I find really interesting. You know, I, should we think of drones as? Something like small arms, everybody has them or could get them fairly easily you know if we if we project out into the future or something like you know advanced high technology weapons platforms or even something like nuclear weapons where the club is limited and and clearly defined and others may want them, but they won't necessarily always get them um, or you know are, are we are we heading to a future where every party to a conflict is going to have unmanned, drones uh, in the air doing either armed attack uh, or reconnaissance.
0: Sadly, I think that the uh, dystopian sort of scenario that Gustafsson talks about in his book um, you know, could be a reality in terms of the diffusion or proliferation of capabilities to actors, whether they're non-state or state, that the United States, at least in terms of our national security interests, would not want to have. A great case in point of this is an article that was sent to me by one of my colleagues in Australia just in fact today, that dealt with the emergence of, get this, an emergence of a drone capability within the Taliban that was used to uh, counter um, the counterattack, as it were, from the resistance within uh, Afghanistan uh, recently. I I haven't independently verified that this unit actually existed, but this paper goes into great detail about the emergence of the specialized organization that used a mortar outfitted on a commercial drone that was bought from China uh, to kill um, somebody part of the resistance, a Uzbek, as it were, up towards uh, the border with, with Tajikistan. Uh, and this is not unlike what we've seen for the Islamic State's use of drone warfare against U.S. and coalition forces in Iraq and Syria. Indeed, General McKenzie, CENTCOM, Central Command Commander, will tell you that drones against U.S. forces is the number one strategic risk that U.S. and coalition forces confront at this point. So, yes, I think we're, we're going to a scenario where we're going to see the proliferation of drones broadly and have to come up with countermeasures to contend with it. And this is why you even have some experts like Martin Cook, a leading sort of um, ethicist and, and philosopher of war at the Naval War College and, and, and also at the U.S. Air Force Academy. He'll argue that notwithstanding the sort of moral concerns I've talked about, that we ought to, as a nation, harness the capability to prevent other states from setting a precedent, uh, a norm uh, for their use. And so this is sort of the external uh, component of, of the ethical argument about why we would want to adopt drone warfares, uh, even given some of the moral uh, and legal concerns we talked about. But there's also kind of an internal component uh, to this as well. And I often have been asked the question, whether it's undergraduates here at Cornell or others uh, in my presentations and writings, you know, is the United States going towards a fully autonomous weapon, which is to say one that can identify a target on its own based upon pre-scripted criteria, can conduct an operation on its own, um, and also can survive on its own over time. And my answer, uh, much to people's surprise, is no. I actually think that the United States, I know the United States at this point is not moving towards a direction of fully autonomous weapon system because we only always want to have sort of a person within the loop that can do the sort of moral struggle that's required based upon broader considerations of commanders' priority intelligence requirements, the legitimacy or status at stake. And so I think there's an external and an internal component, even considering the diffusion of drone warfare in terms of the management. That we have to contend with, and indeed, as we take a look at the book, what we find is that the the, the most serious contention for anti-drone advocates um, is not necessarily drone warfare as it is right now, but sort of fully autonomous weapon system. And so, the next wave of drone warfare literature has got to contend with the broader operational reach, the heightened lethality, and the full autonomy at stake, and recalibrate. The conversation back towards doctrine. I can't see a future, you know, in my lifetime in the service, at least, where we would want to fully outsource the sort of moral calculation for a strike that some of these anti-drone experts uh, will tell you that they fear the most.
1: You know, I, the next question that I want to ask you is really one about um, about how we frame and conceptualize discussions about drones as they continue to evolve. Um, you know, the the the. U.S. military DOD has sort of five groups. Um, group one are the smallest drones. Yeah. I think less than twenty pounds. They don't fly very high. Uh, you know, military uh, listeners will be most familiar with the Raven, probably. Um, but they also include like quadcopters, which is presumably the the Chinese commercial drone that the Taliban reportedly used, according to that article that that you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, we've seen examples of. Of ISIS in Iraq and Syria, modifying uh, quadcopters uh, to be able to drop munitions, and then the highest group, uh, Group Five. These are the Reaper, I think, which is the largest, one of the largest ones in yes. uh, in the U.S. arsenal. Anyway, you know that fly at you know twenty thousand feet and higher, and they're massive. It's hard, you know, when we talk about. Weaponry. We talk, you know, you can call a rifle a gun and you can call a a 155 millimeter artillery piece a gun, and people do, but they're very different things. And so we've developed specialized lexicons to be able to talk about them because you don't use them for the same things. They don't bring the same capabilities to the fight. Is the fact that we call all of these drones, does it hold us back from being able to have maybe a more nuanced discussion?
0: Another great question. Um, It absolutely does. And so the locus of analysis within the book are armed and networked drones. And one point that I, you know, one one uh, sort of um, international regime uh, in literature, I would point your listeners to is that on the missile technology control regime. And so, the missile technology control regime was built in the 1980s to contend with nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles, really to bring states together in a cooperative way to counter the proliferation of not just technologies, but the end item. It has since been retrofitted to account for drones, which some conceive as simply a missile. And so these are missiles at the Category 1 level defined by the, the regime that do fly um, almost 500 miles per an hour, reach beyond 200 miles, and can deliver a very large payload. And I think this is the most important aspect of drone warfare, certainly in a state-on-state conflict, which we actually haven't tested. And nor would we want to about the survivability and efficacy of these platforms, which I think is a little bit dubious based upon the electronic warfare capabilities that our adversaries can bring to bear. But nevertheless, when I talk about drones, I talk about this. Um, certain um, category, because these are the ones that are outfitted with artificial intelligence that are undergirded by this global intelligence collection and analysis architecture that allow commanders, as I said earlier, to shorten the the, the sensor to shooter uh, timeline based upon any number of decision criteria. Uh, We also have to understand that drones, um, whether in the small form or the large form, go more beyond just the platform. And so it takes something like 200 different maintainers, operators, crew members, so on and so forth to operate an armed and network drones. It'll probably take less to operate a Shadow or, or Raven, of course. And these drone operators and maintainers and intelligence analysts are displaced across the world, and some of them are actually deployed in harm's way. And so I think we have to be very clear about what we're talking about in terms of the implications of drones on, let's say, global order. Now, that's not to say that these unarmed, non-lethal, smaller drones aren't important, as we've seen with the Taliban and the Islamic State. In fact, Keith Carter, who's a lieutenant colonel at West Point, wrote a chapter for me on drone warfare proliferation to include among non-state actors. In, In his findings are that drones are coming to a theater of war near you uh, more often than not because of the analytical choices that scholars have made not to confront the proliferation among non-state actors and come up with with meaningful ways to counter that. And so as you talk about what does this mean for governance, I really think what we need is a regime that goes beyond the MCTR, the missile or MTCR, the missile technology control regime uh, or others that are retrofitted, that are post hoc We need something that counts for the technologies that go into these drones, the dual use technologies uh, at that. And that needs to be, I think, how we counter a proliferation of these smaller drones to non-state actors such as insurgents and terrorists uh, going forward. Because what we have right now is frankly uh, a broken hobbled system.
1: You know the army is as um, you know it's it's almost becoming kind of trite to uh, to say this, but it is true. The army is is uh, and and the joint force as a whole is in a period of of, of transition after twenty years of war in uh, in Iraq and most recently in Afghanistan. Um, you know, from the sort of counterterrorism counterinsurgency toward you know readiness for large scale combat operations and and you know making contributions to this sense of great power competition that, you know, that we say has reemerged ever since the, that, well, we've said that has reemerged ever since that was sort of codified in the national security strategy in 2017. Drones have been, uh, I think the public discourse certainly is very much about drone usage in that CT and coin context, because they have been used uh, to, prosecute targets, high value targets, you know, in a CT environment, they have been used for close air support for ground forces in a counterinsurgency environment. As as we transition to a different strategic environment, planning for, for potentially very different adversaries, different missions, a different way of operating, is the way that we in the military, at least, are thinking about the use of drones adapting? Are we Are we thinking sufficiently about what role they're going to play in, say, a major ground war?
0: Yeah, I am. Um, I'm not sure. Um, from my perch up here, um, it would appear not. But I don't want to discount the great work that's taking place in um, the the tunnels of the Pentagon, where I just came from, um, at Tradoc uh, and elsewhere. I'd assume that this is taking place. Let me give you a couple things to consider, real quick. I, I think it's dubious to think that the United States could use drone warfare to the degree and in the way that we've used it against terrorists, when we start talking about a peer, near-peer conflict against any number of strategic competitors. In fact, I think the most studious uh, sort of strategic thinkers at the general officer level will tell you that they think it's dubious as well for the countermeasures at place in terms of electronic warfare, but also the survivability just in terms of AAA or air defense uh, artillery or or, or different sort of air defense system. I mean, we, we, we have had air superiority for the last two decades of conflict, and we likely will not have air superiority in a conflict with Russia, China, or Iran based upon their integrated air defense systems. And so I think that's the first point to note is that we have to rethink using this in a peer conflict, um, unlike what we've done before against terrorists. And so having said that, potentially drones become useful in any number of cases for near peer competitors. One is, I think, protection of forces behind the flot or the so-called forward line of troops. And so protecting Our flanks in an expeditionary setting, whether in the Indo-Asian Pacific or the Middle East, I think will be a critical role for drones to include armed the network drones in terms of persistent stare, the intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance, but also the capability to rapidly strike somebody that's penetrated um, across uh, our defensive uh, belts, if you will. So I think that that's one use of drones within uh, peer conflict. The other sort of use is this sort of notion of mixed drone warfare, that you can use drones to augment both helicopter as well as um, uh, manned platform capability in terms of close air attack and close air support. And so we have to think more in terms of the J.C. Slesser argument back in the turn of the century, uh, the 20th century, that is, in integrating our capabilities for direct action firepower uh, over the head uh, you know, uh, firepower, as it were, as opposed to something as a standalone sort of capability. And then having said that, I think you could use drones certainly within an operational fires or shaping capacity. We need to learn from World War II and the use of coastal artillery, uh, bombers off of uh, aircraft carriers that shape the battlefield, whether in Late Gulf or elsewhere, We ought to think about adopting drones as a shaping fire component uh, to um, penetration, infiltration um, within an anti-access aerial denial sort of strategy that we see in the South China Sea, but also in the Persian Gulf. And so protection of supply lines, the use and support of expeditionary forces, and shaping fires, I think, are things that we ought to be thinking about for the use of drone warfare against a near-peer competitor.
1: I want to kind of zoom out um, a bit and then also cir- circle back to kind of the beginning of the conversation when we were talking about the, you know, the, how this, you know, how, how the increased usage of of, of drones in, in the conduct of war uh, overlays on the question of the changing character of warfare. Um, you know, I, I it's, I'm, I'm assuming kind of impossible to quantify how much, Drone warfare is changing the 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 character of warfare, but I'm going to ask you anyway to to you know give it your best shot. Um, You know what is the impact of uh, the increase in drone warfare on the changing character of warfare?
0: So I think the impact um, on the the changing character of warfare uh, is important in terms of applying asymmetric force against an adversary to protect ourselves. What's really fascinating uh, about the survey response that I received in in this latest original survey experiment with with Americans that I conducted in March is that most Americans, at least, actually one, think that drone warfare is relatively legitimate. And so on the scale of like one to 10, the average response was about like a 6.2. Now, I don't know what that really means, but I know it's above a five. And so it's it's pretty clear that most Americans think drone warfare is uh, pretty, pretty legitimate. And they often don't think about somebody's personal um, risk when they attempt to adjudicate the legitimacy of a strike. In other words, they don't care whether or not um, a soldier is deployed to conflict in this sort of bravery, heroism, you know, martial virtue that he or she demonstrates as a measure of legitimacy. And so I actually think that drone warfare has resulted in the ability to apply force while protecting ourselves. So again, projecting force while not protecting vulnerability which is an important dividend from at least a strategic sort of instrumental logic, which is not to talk about the morality at stake, but the interest um, at stake. Where I disagree with most scholars on the technology of warfare is this notion that drone warfare has changed the, the nature of warfare, which are the social and political Um, sort of pillars of of conflict. Martin uh, Dempsey, general retired Martin Dempsey, just authored uh, a foreword to a book from Thornwillow Press, which is up at West Point, which I would commend to anybody. It's called, uh, I'm looking at it right now in my library, Beauty is the Beginning of Terror. And I just want to read you one quote um, from this book real quick that I think captures exactly um, what I'm trying to communicate in terms of the, um, the nature of war. And so he says on page 17, quote, through this project, the cadets grew in their understanding that war is always an intensely human endeavor, no matter how the trappings of technology might seem to put us at some distance from the horror, unquote. And so I think that that's what we have to really understand is that while we may want to achieve a certain degree of asymmetry that goes above and beyond the machine gun, the artillery piece, the helicopter, the jet, we're never going to get away from the fact that it's really a human endeavor and that these operations, let's say the over the horizon strategy that we're apparently adopting in Afghanistan, are actually built upon intelligence that someone has to gather, whether it's pocket litter, a device, a laptop, and putting these things together in order to point us in the right direction. And so I think the shifting character warfare gives us better protection. But on the other hand, I'm not really sure that over time, the sort of protection is going to outweigh the risk that we will confront in a near uh, peer competitor sort of conflict, whether it's in Asia uh, or the Middle East.
1: Well, you mentioned, um, you know, early in the conversation that that you talked to retired General uh, McCaffrey, Barry McCaffrey, and that he said, you know, he thought his value is really going to be when it, when it makes, when the book makes it into sort of PME institutions, army war college and what have you, I suspect that, um, very shortly, it will be in libraries at you know, at, at sort of all levels of, of U S military education from, you know, West point and the other service academies all the way up to the, the senior services colleges, senior service colleges. Um, I want to, I, you know, I, I have to say I've got a list of about nine more questions at least. <laughs> and every time I ask you one, I've got two more. Um, I think we are going to wrap it up there. I'll say, you know, it's, it's, it is a pleasure to, to, Anytime I get to talk to somebody who has the time to really think deeply about such a complex issue, and 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 listeners will hear it, you know, when as they listen to you, that you've you've spent a lot of time looking at this from, from you know the many relevant angles and 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 perspectives, and uh, if if there's not, you know, I can't think of a better endorsement for the ASB three program and the fact that the army, you know, this is why the army sends. Uh, officers to go get PhDs so that they can improve our institutional thinking about complex challenges. So, uh, with that, I want to thank you again, Paul, for for making some time and, and chatting with me. Uh, you know, recommend the book to to any listeners that are that are interested in it.
0: Thanks so much, John. I really appreciate the opportunity to explain to the Army the return on investment for the Advanced Strategic Planning Policy and Program. And I'll just end with this briefly. Before I left the Pentagon, I met with the lead strategist of the Army, uh, Major General Gerke, and he said, hey, "Paul, you gotta, you know, take out your identification card uh, every once in a while at Cornell when you're sitting underneath the apple tree thinking about these lofty concepts." And remember uh, the institution you're part of and and why we're there. And so this is an opportunity to explain to leaders that the investment, not just for me, but my other peers uh, in the Army and those that will come after us, is worthwhile to equip us with the tool set to make an impact in conflict going forward uh, to the betterment of our democracy and global security.
1: Absolutely. Thanks, Paul. Thanks. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you aren't yet subscribed to the podcast, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have a second, please leave a rating or give it a review, which really does help us reach new listeners. Thanks again.